Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the history of the American people since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, Years of Transition. Please follow along in the PowerPoint as I speak and turn to the slide, Ford's Presidency. Gerald Ford became president in August 1974 upon the resignation of Richard Nixon. Ford was a modest, likable fellow particularly in contrast to Nixon. After becoming president, Ford asked that bands play the fight song to the University of Michigan instead of Hail to the Chief as an acknowledgement that he was not an elected individual and was in a different position than any individual who had ever held that office before. On the whole, Ford had a rather hapless presidency. Ford quickly angered many Americans by issuing a blanket pardon to Richard Nixon for any charges that he might be met with. Ford did this because he believed that a potential trial would be very disruptive to the country since Americans needed to focus on recovering from the recession and inflation. But by pardoning Nixon, Ford drew widespread condemnation, and he created a serious lack of precedent about how to prosecute presidents or a former president for high crimes and misdemeanors. Nixon was not the only individual to receive a pardon. Ford also gave partial pardons to draft dodgers of the Vietnam War. These were men who had refused to be drafted into the army, and while many conservatives accepted this, liberals wanted a full pardon for draft dodgers, which finally occurred under Jimmy Carter. While Ford is mostly remembered for his bungling, he did have some achievements, such as the Education for All Handicapped Children Act. This increased funding for special education programs for children with mental and physical disabilities, and it also created educational plans for parents. In addition, during Ford's term, the Rockefeller and Church Committees held hearings on the illegal activities of the CIA. While the Rockefeller Committee was generally favorable to the CIA, the Church Committee found the CIA's so-called family jewels, which was a pattern of illegal behavior ranging from assassinations to coup d'etats to their spying on the American people as well as their participation in the Watergate scandal. As a result, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence was formed, which provided oversight of clandestine organizations though the CIA still finds ways around such efforts. One of Ford's greatest international achievements was the Helsinki Accords, as part of a broad emphasis on detente, first initiated by Richard Nixon. The Helsinki Accords were part of the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe, which had began in 1973. This brought the United States, the Soviet Union, and the European countries together to discuss how to ease tensions on the continent. By August 1975, the final agreements contained three baskets or major principles. Basket 1 stated that the Yalta Accords borders were permanently solidified, and it acknowledged the Soviet sphere of influence. Basket 2 said that trade agreements would be accepted and promoted, while Basket 3, the most important, talked about human rights and the Soviet Union's commitment to accept human rights. Initially, 
Henry Kissinger wanted to leave out Basket 3, but the Europeans had insisted upon it. Kissinger feared that if the West pushed the Soviets too hard on the issue, they would feel interfered with and would react negatively. However, the inclusion of all three points will have a major impact on the global Cold War moving forward. Brezhnev actually thought he got the better end of the deal. He believed that he would gain support due to the solidifying of the gains made in 1945. In reality, the Helsinki Accords became what one professor called, quote, the manifesto of the dissident and liberal movement, end quote. In other words, this basically led to the creation of the Helsinki Watch, as well as the Human Rights Watch, which supported dissident groups in Eastern Europe. Buoyed by this, people living under the communist system could now claim official permission to say what they thought, and as a result, this would lead to the widespread opposition movements that finally brought down the Iron Curtain from 1989 to 1991. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Economic Troubles. Despite the few measures that we discussed before, Ford's administration was dominated by an attempt to deal with severe recession and inflation. Central to the economic problems was the continuing energy crisis. In the aftermath of the Arab oil embargo of 1973, the OPEC cartel raised the price of oil by 400% in 1974 alone. And this is one of the principal reasons why inflation reached 11% in 1976. Ford struggled without success to address the country's economic woes, which included inflation, unemployment, and stagnation, all of which had been inherited from the Nixon administration. But Ford showed an unwillingness to spend and intervene in the economy the way that Nixon and Eisenhower had done. In fact, Ford vetoed 39 non-military-related measures that he felt would be too much for the already overburdened federal budget. Another example of this mindset occurred when New York City was on the verge of bankruptcy. Ford initially rejected any bailout for the city, but finally approved it on the condition that New York would adopt severe austerity measures. Ford also began the process of deregulation, which he felt hampered business from operating effectively. In the end, this only hurt workers, as deindustrialization continued unabated. In addition, businesses continued to move away from the so-called Rust Belt and into the Sun Belt, stretching from the Carolinas to California. Combined, Ford's lack of action, the recession, the oil embargo, and deindustrialization all meant that the economic crisis would continue in the United States unabated for the next six years. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Election of 1976. Briefly, before we get into that election, let me describe the effects of the 1974 midterm elections. See, midterm elections can be vitally important, and this election showcases that fact. Democrats had taken 49 seats from the GOP in that election, which meant that this was the most Democrats elected to Congress since 1960. Part of the success lay in the emerging divisions inside the Republican Party. Nixon had been able to bridge the gap between moderate and conservative Republicans, but Ford was not as good at finding the balance. 
The divisions within the Republican Party is best illustrated by the primary challenge to President Ford. In the Republican primary campaign, Ford faced a powerful challenge from former California Governor Ronald Reagan, the leader of the party's conservative wing. The conservative wing spoke for many Americans on the right who had opposed any agreement with the communists, which means the efforts at detente, SALT one in opening up China under Nixon, and the Helsinki Accords under Ford. Reagan nearly snatched the nomination from Ford, and the president barely survived the assault to win his party's nomination. While the Republicans were divided, the Democrats gradually united behind a new and until recently almost entirely unknown candidate, Jimmy Carter. Carter was the former governor of Georgia who appealed to the general unhappiness with Washington, and he offered honesty, piety, and the outsider's skepticism of the federal government. I should also note that he had a long service in the U.S. Navy and was actually an engineering officer on board a U.S. nuclear submarine. Carter did not run as a liberal. Instead, he campaigned as a fiscal conservative and as an outsider untainted by the corruption of Washington. His focus on personality was especially important in the 1976 election, which took place less than two years after the Watergate scandal and the resignation of Nixon. This appealed to many voters, who were deeply cynical about their government, and thus character became a more significant factor than individual issues. Carter presented a fresh-faced outsider with roots in small-town America, as well as his experience as a naval officer and even a peanut farmer who made working people rather than the special interests his priority as governor. Carter's campaign advertising showcased the candidate in a denim work shirt on a farm, and this appealed to many working-class Americans as well as baby boomers. As I alluded to before, divisions inside the Republican Party, the strain of Watergate, and discontent with Ford's policies enabled the Democrats to win a narrow victory. So Jimmy Carter was elected in 1976, and the Democrats had retaken the South thanks to the African-American vote, which pushed Carter over the top. This would be one of the last times that the Democrats managed to take the region, as we will see in future lectures. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Liberalism Abandoned. Despite the fact that the Democrats had made substantial gains in the 1976 election, they showed that the party had abandoned the traditional liberalism of a bygone era since they failed to bring back the Great Society or expand the New Deal. Now I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I want to point out that the decline of labor unions that we will discuss on the next slide also coincided with ideological changes in American liberalism. You see, labor and its political concerns had undergirded Roosevelt's New Deal coalition, but by the 1960s, many liberals had forsaken working-class politics. More and more Americans began to see poverty as not a result from structural flaws in the national economy, but rather the failure of individuals to take full advantage of the American system. This loss of faith in government would lead to the rise of neoliberalism, or faith in markets, that will dominate for the next 50 years of American economic and political ideology. During Carter's administration, democratic accomplishments were few and far between since they were stumped by high inflation, 
low economic growth, and high unemployment. All of these combined to create what economists call stagflation. Democrats did not know what to do about it, and they continued to waver between tax cuts to aid the economy or whether or not to address inflation head-on. This waffling was made worse, since the outsider, President Carter, was not in sync with many congressional Democratic leaders. Carter resisted Ted Kennedy's plan to expand Medicare and Medicaid, which was a touchstone of liberal reform. Carter also gutted a liberal initiative to commit government to create jobs when unemployment exceeded 4%. So in legislative terms, Carter's accomplishments are few, even though his party controlled Congress. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Deindustrialization. Stagflation, combined with deindustrialization, was reshaping the American economy in ways that we still feel to this day. One example is that retail prices rose by roughly 10% in the last years of the 1970s. In addition, by the late 1970s in Detroit, a three-decade economic trend began to show its stripes. The car company Chrysler cut its Detroit production workforce in half over an eight-year span. And due to this, Detroit lost 10 plants and over 71,000 jobs. This occurred because Detroit was a single industry city, and decisions made by the big three, or the major automakers, reverberated across the city's industrial landscape. When auto companies mechanized or moved their operations, ancillary suppliers like machine tool companies were cut out of the supply chain and likewise forced to cut their own workforce. In addition, Carter initiated numerous efforts to rein in regulation. He reduced government oversight on airlines, trucking, and railroads, and all of these industries had large, powerful unions. We will begin to see their power decline as a result of deindustrialization and the movement of businesses to the Sun Belt, where lower taxes, lower wages, and fewer regulations, as well as anti union policies, gutted or destroyed many unions. The result is clear. In 1970, over 25% of the American workforce were in unions, which gave them good paying jobs, health and retirement benefits, all without the need of a college education. By the year 2000, union membership had dropped to 12%. As a result, union political power has declined to its lowest depth since before the New Deal, carrying both positive and negative effects on American politics. While deindustrialization went on, Carter raised interest rates and tightened the money supply. These policies were designed to reduce inflation in the long term, but increased unemployment in the short term. So as you can see, the country is gripped with major economic issues, which are all exacerbated by the continuing energy crisis. And these multiple crises brought out the Southern Baptist moralist in Carter. On July 15, 1979, President Carter delivered a nationally televised speech on the energy policy in which he attributed the country's economic woes to a crisis of confidence. Carter lamented, quote, Too many of us now tend to worship self-indulgence and consumption, end quote. 
Carter pointed out that consumer culture made the sacrifices of previous eras less attractive for Americans who now prided comfort above conscience. He challenged Americans to rethink their lifestyles, their priorities, and their expectations. But in the end, the speech fell flat. And to this day, many older Americans view Carter as preachy and ineffective. There is a clip of Carter's speech that I want you to watch on the PowerPoint, and be prepared to tell me your thoughts. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Politics and Government. This view that Carter was ineffective and preachy helped stimulate a broader conservative movement. By the 1970s, the conservatives were better organized and more focused on messaging than ever before especially since more and more people were willing to rethink government's role in the economy in everyday life. This will lead many Americans to buy into the concept of deregulation. If you recall, conservatives had argued as far back as Secretary of Treasury Andrew Mellon in the 1920s that the public might be better off if the government got out of the business's way and reduced taxes. Many Americans began to wonder if a better way to reduce poverty was through less taxation and less regulation. Some believed that this was particularly suited for entrepreneurs, at least in theory. The point is that while Ronald Reagan often gets credit for deregulation, it was Ford and Carter that began the process. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Carter's Cold War. Carter continued to improve relations between China and the Soviet Union. He responded eagerly to the overtures of Deng Xiaoping, the new Chinese leader, and attempted to open his nation to the outside world. On December 15, 1975, Washington and Beijing announced the resumption of formal diplomatic relations. A few months later, Carter traveled to Vienna to meet with the aging and ailing Brezhnev, in order to finalize the draft of the SALT II arms control agreement, which would set new limits on a number of long-range missiles, bombers, and nuclear warheads. However, almost immediately, SALT II was met with fierce conservative opposition in the United States Senate, and the agreement was never ratified. Carter's efforts were also stymied by events in the Middle East. Due to widespread abuse and repression, the Shah of Iran was overthrown and he escaped into exile, eventually coming to the United States for cancer treatment. In his wake, the Islamic Republic of Iran was established under the Grand Ayatollah Khomeini. When news reached Iranian protesters that the Shah had been invited to the United States, they stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran and captured 53 Americans. These hostages were held prisoner for over a year, and repeated overtures for their release by Carter failed. Carter even greenlit an American rescue attempt, but due to bad weather and poor equipment, U.S. helicopters grounded in Iran, and the rescuers themselves had to be rescued. The entire episode was a national humiliation, and the hostages were not released until the day of Ronald Reagan's inauguration in Iran got a great deal of satisfaction for helping topple Carter. Another headache occurred on December 27, 1979, when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, 
which is a mountainous Islamic nation lying between the USSR and Iran. The Soviet Union had been a power in Afghanistani politics for years and the dominant force since April of 1978. Some observers claimed that the Soviet invasion was merely a Russian attempt to secure the status quo, but Carter claimed it was a Russian stepping stone to their possible control over the much of the world's oil supplies and, quote, the greatest threat to world peace since World War II. In response to this invasion, Carter directed the United States to boycott the 1980 Summer Olympic Games held in the Soviet Union, and in total, 65 countries boycotted the event, though the Soviets and their allies retaliated by boycotting the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles. The point is that to many Americans, Carter's response to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the Iranian hostage crisis was insufficient. Combined, it appeared that Carter was weak on communism and that he and the Democratic Party were not strong in aspects of foreign relations and war, and this charge has been levied against the Democratic Party ever since. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Run-Up to 1980. As President Carter floundered, the Democratic Party became disillusioned again. While enthusiasm among Democrats declined, the Republicans ran a vibrant grassroots campaign that would crystallize in a new Republican coalition. To many white Americans, the urban rebellions, anti-war protests, and student uprisings of the late 1960s had unleashed social chaos. At the same time, declining wages, rising prices, and growing tax burdens brought economic vulnerability to many working and middle-class citizens who long formed the core of the New Deal coalition. As such, liberalism no longer seemed to offer the great mass of white Americans a roadmap to prosperity, so they searched for new political solutions, and this would set the stage for the Reagan Revolution of 1980. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you are staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.